Hello and welcome to this episode of Thrill of the Hill. My name is Alec Perry and this is the Farm Advisory Service series where we discuss the hot topics impacting the farmed upland environment. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I'm joined by returning guest speaker Struan Candlish from the Ayrshire Rivers Trust. We talk about a whole host of topics, including the plight of Scotland's Atlantic salmon, tree planting, slurry spreading, and achieving nature restoration at a landscape scale. Hello, Struan, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good, Alex. Thanks for, thanks for having us on again. So, my name's Struan Candlish. I'm a fisheries biologist and work with the Ayrshire Rivers Trust and have done so now for almost nine years. Uh, my first introduction to the Trust was with um, work experience at school when I was about 13 years old and uh, in some sense I've always been involved with the Trust from that point onwards, be it volunteering or doing some sort of casual work through the summer. So I'm now 31 and uh, so it's more than half a lifetime, <laughs> which is a scary way to phrase it, um, spent with the Trust, but it's, uh, it's enormously enjoyable and uh, very rewarding. Um, currently we've got six uh, members of staff who are all very dedicated to realising the objectives we have. Um, our remit is for the, the freshwater environment across all of Ayrshire, so that's from the very northerly points of probably Skelmerly water is the most northerly water course. Um, we would be looking at um, all the way down to the, the Stinshire at Ballantrae, so it's a very large um, section of land and uh, a lot of different uh, river characteristics, land uh, management techniques and lots of issues but also lots of things that are on the on the up so we're always trying to be positive but um, I'm sure as we get into talking a little bit more about the clients and salmon some aspects of uh, our work aren't all that positive um, despite what we were trying to do. And uh, how has the water environment in Ayrshire changed in the last year and a half? I mean this year has been pretty uh, pretty up and down in, in terms of, of weather conditions obviously we had a, a period of quite extreme drought in the summer of 2023 and then in the back end there famously there was was quite a lot of flooding across Scotland I mean what's the situation like in Ayrshire? Um, from our perspective I think what you're saying is right um, we're sort of seeing more extremes in terms of uh, weather that's longer drier periods um, warmer periods uh, during summer months and then we get these deluges over over winter um, and that that has its um, own set of problems um, we were downloading data loggers um, which we spoke about last time but for those who haven't heard that episode we have a range of data loggers across the river air catchment and they record um, temperature water temperature at uh, 15 minute intervals uh, year round which gives us a very accurate picture of what's happening day to day seasonal and then that allows us to compare and contrast against uh, previous years um these have been logging data now for us since uh, i think before 2015 is about the, when it started so we're starting to get a very interesting um uh, an interesting picture on, on what's happening um some of our upper catchments where we're lacking tree plant uh, lacking tree cover and, and the shading that that provides we're getting into temperatures up to 26 27 um with some regularity in the summer months. Um, the optimal range for salmon and trout production is around about 16. Beyond 23, you're into a sort of quite a thermal stress where fish are looking to uh, seek refuge and find deeper, cooler water. Um, if you get much over 30 for a, any period of time, you're, a, you're in that lethal range in a few minutes of that temperature will, will wipe out fish very quickly. Um, so when we're getting up to 26, 27, we're really in a quite a precarious position there. Um, fish are going to be extremely stressed, uh, seeking out um, cooler refuge pools, um, abandoning the, their usual territories. And during these hot water or warm water um, events, the metabolism of the fish is raised that much higher than it would be under normal conditions. So it's expending more calories just to maintain sort of homeostasis, just breaking even um, and they can't replace those very easily so the condition factor goes down the growth rate drops during these periods and yeah you're very far from optimal but um, as we talked about last time a lot of our work and what we're aiming towards now is two things really fencing and tree planting and um, those 
are the things that really will make the, the difference across Ayrshire and Scotland and probably across the world, to be perfectly honest. Um, and one, getting trees established and shading on riverbanks. But that has a whole cascade of benefits when we enact those um, elements. It's not just then about what happens in the water environment. That has a huge benefit to the terrestrial environment, improving habitat connectivity for range of bird species and animal species. Um, it's acting as a buffer for nutrients um, that that area would intercept those nutrients before it hits the water environment and filters it out. You're getting shading, you're getting bank stability, so you see less erosion. That means less sediment and silt going into our, our water courses. And of course, sediment and silts in water courses, what they act in smothering what we would call the interspecial spaces um, in the gravels. That's just sort of jargon for what you want is loose, uh, clean, mobile gravels for um, fish to spawn in. Um, that then provides good habitat for juvenile development. And if you've got lots of silt sand clogging those pores up, uh, it's a bad story uh, from there on out. So fencing tree planting is really sort of the silver bullet in a lot of ways. Um, unfortunately, it's an expensive bullet. And it also at times then comes at the cost of water margins, which might have been productive ground for um, agriculture and farming. So it's that toss up between Yes, we know we need to maximise production. Um, we've got growing, um, growing populations. Um, people need uh, foods, so we need to maximise these areas. But at the same time, we've got um, species which are very much under threat and really require th their main requirement is cool, clean water, and that's something we can provide. But uh, it does require. It requires trees and invariably it requires fencing unless we can find alternative means to fencing, which technology is moving in that direction, but it's not quite there yet is my understanding. Um, we spoke about, a little bit about that in the, the last episode. And Struan, we, we did talk a bit about the, the virtual fencing technology, and I think that technology is only going to develop and become more widespread in Scotland, certainly. It's, it's something that a lot of farmers are approaching us about, they're very interested about, um, and, and we're very excited about where that's where that's going to go. Um, with regards to um, to salmon, it, it was a bit of a, a punchline in the last podcast, if I remember. We did spend an awful lot of time talking about Atlantic salmon, and I've I've maybe developed a bit of a, a, a more rounded appreciation of the species recently. I mean, you'll maybe be aware that in last year's COP, the conservation status of, of Atlantic salmon was updated um, and it's now considered to be near threatened. Can you just discuss a little bit about the Atlantic salmon, why it's an important species for, for Scotland and where you think the species is heading? Yeah, so salmon, Atlantic salmon, um, which we, we have in Scotland, um, numbers are reduced or dropping quite drastically and um, one of the headlines from recent uh, conferences uh, by some of the top scientists in Scotland looking at this stuff is that we may start to see extinctions in the next 20 years um, in rivers, not just not not seeing an extinction across Scotland, but uh, localised um, where things are very precarious. Um, salmon relative to trout have quite a complex life cycle. Um, to keep it simple, brown trout exist or, or, or spawned in the grow and exist um, in, in our water courses and they never leave with the exception of sea trout but we'll leave that out because that just muddies the water so to speak. Um, salmon have a much more complex life cycle where they are born of a couple of years um, development in freshwater environments then they leave to go to sea um, and it's during that migration uh, phase where they're susceptible to a host of things, um, one being rising sea temperatures. So climate change doesn't just affect our our rivers and land, it affects the, the sea. Um, so that means our fish are sometimes having to, to migrate greater distances to find less food. Um, so that's not a particularly well-balanced equation. Um, aquaculture is something that's only increasing at the moment. And as our smokes leave the rivers, they are that's the sort of life stage which are most vulnerable um, to disease, to pests and parasites. And it's at that stage where 
especially on the west coast of Scotland, where the bulk of aquifers are situated just due to topography and um, the shelter that our, our sea locks provide. Those fish are then having to run past or swim past these uh, cages and they're susceptible to the parasites, um, especially sea lice. And so a great deal of smokes are being lost at that life stage. Um, it used to be the sort of general rule of thumb was if you had your smokes that left and came back as adult fish, you would expect sort of 20 to 25% of those smokes to return as adult fish to, your, to their native rivers. We're now down to the, the, the number that's been um, talked about, about 2 or 3%. So that's a huge decline in the number of fish that leave our rivers um, and then make it back. And we talk about indicator species a lot in, in your line of work and in, in our line of work. Um, salmon are not necessarily the best indicator species for the other watercourses anymore because, because of the complex life cycle, what's happening out at sea. On the whole, water quality we see getting better and better across the ocean. I, I report Scotland is uh, not out of place to say. Um, but salmon numbers continue to decline and decline quite rapidly. So those two things don't uh, marry up particularly well. What we can look at is um, something like a brown trout, which are resident within our water courses um, and are susceptible to everything that happens in them. And what we're seeing is good numbers of brown trout <coughs> across the rivers, and they seem to be increasing. Um, so land management is generally getting better though we still see um failings um, from time to time and we could talk a little bit about that later on um but salmon have got this sort of iconic status um across scotland and they're quite crucial in a number of ways they bring nutrients back from the sea um and typically a lot of these fish are spawning in the very upland headwaters which have got nutrient deprived areas so these fish go out to sea is maybe fish that are 100 40 millimetres long, 14 centimetres long, half a ruler length. And they're coming back um, anything from maybe 65 centimetres to upwards of a metre in length. And all that muscle and fat is being gained at sea. And so they are acting as a transport mechanism for those those nutrients because most salmon um, don't survive beyond this, the spawning phase in their life cycle. It's just they stop feeding when they come into fresh water and they are they've got to just survive off the, the fat and the muscle reserves. They've then got to go through the process of spawning, which is incredibly energy demanding. And the net result of that is most, most of those animals uh, die. And then they act as food for otters, um, herons, various species. Um, and they act as, to put nutrient back into those upland areas. So that part of life cycle is very important. They've also got strong links with um, freshwater peramussels, um, which are another indicator of good water quality. And although peramussels, they are, they rely on heavily on salmon and to a lesser extent trout um, as a vector for, for moving within the, the, the river environment, because these are just bivalves. They don't really have the, the prevent, they don't have the capacity to to swim, let's say. Um, so not to get too into the weeds with that, but they attack this the, the very young attach themselves into the gills of the, the fish in, in the river. And as those fish migrate, um they'll drop off and then start new colonies. And that's their that's their mode for expansion. And you may say, well okay, why? What what happens if we lose peramussels? Is that a big issue? Well peramussels are fantastic filter feeders and fully grown adults we might filter up to 50 litres of water a day. Um, when you think what you should have is colonies of thousands upon thousands of these, all of a sudden you can ratchet those those numbers up and you can see how beneficial having filter feeders in a river like that are. Unfortunately, peramussels are um, largely missing and from the water courses where they ought to be. Um, and a lot of that's down to overfishing because people were looking for the perils in these uh, mussels. In years gone by and um, it's not such a thing now because there's so few of them and trying to find pair mussels is is difficult so but in, in the act of looking for these um, perils um the mussels are pulled out opened up and chucked up a riverbank and, and perished so yeah salmon are, are definitely in a precarious position and um, we see it in our in our monitoring work 
um, and that's echoed across all of Scotland. It's, it's also seen in the, the rod catches from anglers. Um, numbers are going down. And when it comes to angling, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because as numbers drop, interest wanes, and so angling participation drops and catches drop, and it's this sort of vicious cycle where the people who are the people who are sort of proper salmon anglers and are still sticking with it still catch good numbers of fish, um, not anything like what they would have caught back in the seventies or eighties, which is quite often seen as the the benchmark for where we should be. But that's a very recent um, time frame to be working in. What would salmon numbers have looked like a millennia ago? Probably very much different and probably a huge um, increase in, in anyone's sort of living memory of where fish are currently. So um, it's, it's a difficult cycle. It's also one where we're not quite seeing the level of um, resource and funding being allocated um, to do the work that we see need needing to happen. Um, it's very difficult. There's a lot of very worthy causes out there that um, require resource. Um, I do feel that sometimes fish, because they're sort of generally unseen beneath the surface of the water, um, don't attract the same interest, let's say, um, that you know garden birds do because you can see those from your window it's very easy to be a part of that uh, story fish is a bit different it's a bit uh, out of sight out of mind do you know it's it's really interesting that you say that because um you and i have, have discussed this before and um, we had our farm advisory service series on collaboration and conservation um in the autumn of 2023 it was a really nice event a series of events I've also been fortunate enough to completely by accident stumble across some freshwater pearl mussel um, for the for the the kind of safety of the species. I'll not not say which which water course or where, <laughs> but um, but it, it was a it was a tremendous day, a, a great find, and uh, not something that I'll ever repeat. I'm I'm sure. Um, Struan, you mentioned there that there were some failings within the the farming community that you know you still see as something that could be addressed. Could you just elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, what, what are some of the issues that you're still coming across? Sure. I mean, likes of our last week um, where we were into the very, very cold temperatures um, in our way into the office most mornings that week, we were sort of down to somewhere between minus seven and minus 10. Um, and yet quite often there was quite a strong smell of flooding there. Um, my understanding of the rules is that um, spreading unless it's farmyard manure, uh, onto frozen ground um, as a no-no, as the, the rules would have it. Um, so things like that, um, we are, our office is very rural. Um, everyone has to drive through countryside and farmland um, to get to the office. So, And we do spend a disproportionate amount of time relative to most people out in these environments. So we tend to see the feelings, and to a certain extent, we are looking to find the feelings because in doing so we can report back to people and hopefully improve those things which will ultimately be um, beneficial to the water environment but also just the environment at large in itself um, so simple actions like that we but we've, we understand as well that it's over winter you've got non-stop rain just about so your fields are waterlogged for that phase of the year um, and if they're not waterlogged they tend to be frozen so, and all the time, if you've got a, if you've got a head of cattle, you're generating um, mess that needs to be gotten rid of. It depends how much storage capacity you have. And I know there was a drive in years, a few years ago um, to improve the, the storage facilities. Um, but at the same time, herd size increased at the same time as that. So it was almost like sort of this um, arms race between size, uh, size and storage. Um, then we came into this week and we had a, a thaw very quickly. We, today we were, were 9, 10 degrees. That's a swing in terms of swing of 20 degrees, which is huge. And a hell of a lot of rain and two damn storms. And so all of that slowly has been put on fields, ends up very quickly in field drains into barns and into rivers at a time where eggs have recently been laid in, in gravel and are particularly susceptible to pollution. 
Um, so that's that's one of the more the more common ones. Um, things little things like or simple things like um, spreading too close to riverbank tops. Um, that ten meter buffer, we do see it observed. Um, it'd be nice to see it observed um, more frequently. Um, those are probably the the main ones. Uh, quite often you, you do see ditching going on. You think, well, do you, did you really need to do that? And if you did need to do that, did it have to be at this time of year? That's not necessarily people working out with the rules. That's maybe just a little bit more nuanced to understanding that there's a, there might be a better time to do that work um, and reduce the or minimise the risk to uh, the water environment. So some of that maybe comes down to education. Some of it is um, trying to get rid of a, a waste product um, and get onto the ground without damaging it. And we see that's a kind of frost situation. Um, we'd like to see bigger buffers when fences go in. But again, it's a catch-22. There's this uh, toss-up between an effective buffer and losing too much valuable farmland. It's... Uh, Nothing, there's no simple answers and all these things end up being compromises of a sort, but um, we do tend to find that things are getting better on the whole, but um, just there are, there are feelings here and there that we would like to see get better. And you mentioned there, Struan, some particular times where fish species are particularly sensitive to, to applications of slurry, for example. I mean, this is this is your opportunity. Is there a period of time in the year where you feel, actually, farmers, if, if you could hold off, that would be great, or if you could really make sure that you were observing the rules during this particular period of time specifically, that, that would be great for us. You I mean, what, what kind of time skills are you looking at? Yeah, so the sort of spawning period and then the... So you've got fish spawning and trout spawn slightly earlier than salmon, but let's say from sort of November when the trout start spawning or late October um, through to Christmas come New Year time, that's when your spawning typically will be happening. Um, and that's the fish laying their eggs in the gravel. They lay their eggs in a, a, a gravelly sort of nest, if you like, within the rivers and the uh, burns. At that point, the eggs are quite fragile, quite susceptible to pollution events. Um these big floods that we've just had recently may lead to mobilised gravel and what we would call red washout. So that's eggs getting washed out of the nests, in which case they will perish. Um, then the sort of general exclusion zone for working in within water um, that SEPA have and that we support is from, you know, October, the end of October through to May. And May is the sort of time that's given because that's when the fish that are being laid in those eggs in the gravel will emerge as um, fry. Um, and at that point, they are they are free swimming and they're mobile and they're not, you know, stuck in this this gravel, um, unable to to move. Um, so really, it's that phase that's um, particularly vulnerable. That said. We've had um, fish kill events um, in recent years on the Stinshire, um, particularly, and also on the Garvin, during spells of very hot water and very low water conditions. And at that stage, you've got we tend to get quite a lot of um, weed and algal growth. Um, that's just due to excess nutrient getting into the water. But um, when it gets to night and the, the weed starts to expel lots of CO2, um, it drops the dissolved oxygen content of the water very quickly and those fish that uh, are already stressed due to the water temperatures we talked about earlier on um, then you get this drop, this huge drop in um, the oxygen content and they're very susceptible at that point to any pollution event at all and we suspect in the Stinshire um, there's been a couple of fish kills where we've seen you know, some mass mortality especially of juveniles but also of, of adult fish um, where you've got very low water, very warm water water conditions. But then there's something that triggers that fish kill. Um, and it's probably not, we don't think it's temperature related. Um, ourselves and SEPA have looked into this and um, done quite a lot of sampling. It doesn't look to be temperature related. There must be another catalyst there um, 
that turns that on. So ideally, we don't want any pollution of any description. Um, in the real world, diffuse pollution and point source pollution are two very different uh, kettles of fish. And you've got diffuse pollution where you've got, say, like some banks erosion, which is you getting silt and um, alluvial soils being washed into the river. That's what gives your river that horrible grey, murky, brown colour um, during spate conditions, which is fairly typical for Ayrshire um, due to the, the land management. Um, point source, you've got something like a pipe or something that's carrying content that ought not to be going uh, into the water environment and causing an issue. So, yeah, th those are the, the time periods probably to be or the conditions to be most wary of, but um, we would just, uh, we, want to, we want to see everyone sort of uphold best practice um, all year round, wherever possible. Yep, yeah, totally agree. Um, but no, just good to get your perspective on that. Like you say, a lot of farmers maybe don't think about the fish in the water environment. You know, it's maybe on the other side of their fence line as far as they're concerned. There's maybe yeah. a little bit of out, out of out of sight, out of mind. Struan, the last time that we had you on the podcast, you were discussing a nature restoration fund project that you had on the go. Um, I believe it was the Wellwood project. Um, is yep. there an update on that? I mean, how's how's that going? Yeah, so we had a member of staff go up and um, do a walkover, a sort of assessment of where we're at with that currently. Um, part of the, the remit of the, the nature restoration fund is that there's a 10-year um, maintenance phase to be observed. And so he went up and made a note of what, how our trees are doing. Um, do we need to replace any of the stakes and guards? Uh, do we need to beat up any of the, the trees that haven't done so well or, or perished? And um, he even came out with a load of photos and it's looking very good. Um, nothing looks brilliant over winter, but the, we can see lots of good growth um, on the trees. Uh, the, the bank restoration work that we've done there where there was a lot of regradings um, a lot of coir membrane laid, green engineering works which looked like willow mattresses, large woody debris along the banks to help diffuse the flow and um, there was a willow went in through quite a lot of it and it's it's really doing well. It's um, reduced a lot of the, the erosion that was happening up there because we had a very, well what we had was a, a morphologically altered section of, of water course and levied banks and banks that were unfenced with livestock access and through a combination of fencing through and the green engineering and the regrading works there that's uh that's a, a section of rubber that's well on the way to recovery and uh yeah with the the trees that have gone in there we've got a root matrix which will help bind those loose sort of alluvial soils um, together and prevent erosion, uh, provide habitat for birds, for trees, for um, insect life. So it's uh, that's been a very positive experience and um, it sort of led to quite a number of conversations about expanding that type of work in, in the upper air, air catchment, um, which was something that uh, yourself and the trusts explored and looked to the Nature Restoration Fund we didn't quite get it through in its current guise, but it's still that's still something that's uh, we're we're working on and pursuing to try and bring that sort of level of um, that level of intervention um, across other bits, other pieces of water courses and upper catchments um, where we've got sort of similar impacts. But uh, typically, that's looking like lacking trees, um, so you've got lack of shading, lack of uh, woody debris in the rivers, um, and Trees and water are sort of two things that go hand in hand. Um, when trees fall into rivers, quite often people get upset and that needs to come out. It doesn't look tidy. It makes it difficult for fishing. Um, scavers the riverbed, but those are all very um, favourable uh, traits of trees um, around rivers for us. Uh, it provides excellent habitat. It provides diversity of flow when they drop in. You've got uh, leaf litter, which is sort of giving you nutrients um which helps feed the invertebrate life which is the thing that underpins all rivers you know if you don't if you don't have a healthy invertebrate community that's what your fish feed on so your fish are going to um 
are going to struggle off the back of that. So, yeah, it's, a, it's that was a very good project, and uh, it's about using it as a bit of a springboard to try and realise those benefits across other water courses in Ayrshire. And I'm sure your next question is going to be about the the Garvin project that we're involved with. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I was just, you mentioned the Garvin Water earlier on in the recording, and I was just just keen to to get an idea of, of what the what the project was on the Garvin Water. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, that's, um, again, it's been predominantly funded by the Nature Restoration Fund. Um, we've also got contributions um, from the landowner and the, the Garvin District Salmon Fishery Board, which we're very grateful for their input on. Um, that particular project in the Garvin is called Greening the Banks of the Water of Garvin. Um, it's a section through the, the middle reaches, which um, again, similar to the Wellwood project, we've got a, a section or sections of rubber that have been morphologically altered um, century or a couple of centuries ago. And as a result of that, we've got sections of rubber which are very straight. Uh, banks have been levied. Um, Quite, quite a lot of the area was lacking lacking riparian fencing. Um, so a great deal of it has been, I think we're putting something like two and a half kilometres of um, fencing on the banks there uh, so we can better manage those water margins. Again, this isn't livestock exclusion. Um, we've got gates all through it to allow um, sheep grazing in the right times of year. Uh, but the, the fencing is going to serve to protect the, the trees which we're in the process of trying to plant but um, last week we couldn't get a spade in the ground because it was frozen and this week uh, we couldn't put anyone in the river bank for fear of them getting uh, blown into the into the water so we were planning on having volunteer days but we've just we've just had to keep on postponing over due to weather so hopefully next week we'll be we'll be on the ground there and um, planting trees but uh, another aspect of that project was tackling a big erosion scar at the bottom of the site. Um, so sixty odd meter, maybe a bit longer than that meter section of um, sheer river bank with nice alluvial soils. It's good drained, free draining soil there, but um, that bank was being lost and tons of soil being lost to the to the river um, there. So uh, we regraded that um, the back in September of last year and. We used what a technique I think we're calling um, willow mattressing, where we lay willow um, across the riverbank, a bit more soil that's been from the dugout, more willow, more soil, and that's all pinned and wired in place so that um, it stands up to these winter space. When uh, all the willow that will go into something like that will is fresh cut, so it's going to root into the, the riverbank. Uh, those roots that we talked about earlier are going to act as a, a, a matrix there that binds everything together and of course the willow will grow up and you'll get shade and you'll get uh, habitat um, all these projects that we're involved with um, we generally put together videos explaining what we're doing how we're doing it and they're all available on our website. But if people are interested, if you just search you, uh, on YouTube for Ayrshire Rivers Trust, you'll, you'll get a breakdown of all the things we're in, involved in. Um, and if there's anyone who's interested in this type of work and they, they want to get in touch, they can do so. They just If you just search for Ayrshire Rivers Trust online, you'll get our website and we're more than happy to, to help out, be it um, with advice or um, with actual engineering works itself. We've um we've now got quite a lot of experience of doing this, this rubber bank and, and green engineering. Um it's not without its difficulties and timing of year and understanding what techniques to use where are hugely important. And you know, early on we had a, a couple of failures. Um one we were very unfortunate the week after we finished some of the engineering works on a burn on the the dune system, the Colroy burn. There was um a, a name storm came through and took the whole lot out so there are lessons to be learned from things like that but uh, yeah we're very happy to be of service to anyone who's looking to try and make improvements to their, to their river banks or their, their water margins. Struan what strikes me about riverbank restoration is and, and maybe this is just a feature of the nature restoration fund but they they do seem to be looking for 
projects that are going to have that kind of landscape scale impact. Um, and, and certainly when you look at doing projects at a catchment level, the water environment seems to tick a lot of boxes. What is it about these kind of projects that you think is particularly um, of interest to, to, to Nature Scott, to the Nature Restoration funding team? Um, and have you seen other projects being done in other locations across Scotland? Yeah, I think the, the very attractive thing about um, working with rivers as an element of a project is that one, they connect the whole of the landscapes, um, starting the the headwaters at the top of the catchment and then running all the way down to the sea. So there's tremendous linkage across habitats, communities. Um, so there's also there's a lot of potential for benefits. If you do work at the top of a river catchment, the, the benefit for that's sort of that improvement to water quality up there felt all the way down to, to the sea. And then that has an impact on things like um, bathing water quality and the quality of uh, our beaches. So th- I think that's the sort of the sort of fundamental underpinning part of it is the, um, is the, the linkage there. I think also when we look at um, making improvements to the water environment, that's our, that's our focus. Although anything we do, has much broader uh, benefits to terrestrial ecology um, and land management as well. It's if we plant trees and fence river banks and reduce erosion, these are obviously benefits to the water environment and the animals that inhabit that environment, but it also has benefits to all the terrestrial ecology as well. Um, so, I mean, there are projects where you've got um, sort of upland drain blocking and you've got improvements to peatland being made. And so there you're improving your carbon capture and your carbon sinks, um, which is another aspect of the climate change um, argument. And you're making improvements to the hydrology of your river catchment as well, because you don't have... Uh, I think in years gone past, when forestry practices were first sort of happening... In the first phases, what you got was um, a lot of drains on hillsides that uh, acted to remove water off the off the hillside as quickly as possible. And in doing so, what you what you did was speed up the rate of which water hits a river. It goes into spate. Um, obviously, you've got a lot of energy at the peak of that spate, which is probably going to do damage at some point. Whereas if you've got a a, a catchment that acts like a sponge and soaks up water slowly and releases it slowly, you don't get these massive peaks. You don't get these big spikes where you've got potential for lots of damage to happen, especially in morphologically altered rivers, which is, if we're being honest, every single river in Scotland. There's very, very few places where you can go and say that's a a river in its natural state unaltered. Um, When people altered rivers, they tended to straighten them because that made agricultural practices more easy and more manageable, and it was a better use of the land as a whole um so you get these long straight sections and then you get a point where they're not straight anymore they're going to bend all that energy that's contained there hits that bank and causes damage if you've got a, a river that's naturally wiggly and sinewy it's hitting a bank slowing down hitting a bank slowing down and never gets the that sort of velocity and that force behind it um and if you've got trees near river banks, then you're probably not going to get too much erosion anyway because you've got a root system there that's holding the whole thing together. Um, so I think from that perspective, the the Nature Restoration Fund has been a very viable uh, resource for us. We've got two projects, we've had two projects with them and the, the government project will be finishing up in in March um, once we've got the trees in the ground. And we are looking um, to the next the next projects and I won't say what those are at the moment because we went we had developed the project um jointly between your team and the, the the trust team and got asked to sort of reevaluate some of the the outcomes of that because I think they're really looking for the landscape scale change and that's a difficult that's a quite that can be a difficult thing to actualize because you're talking about fairly extensive large scale works and sometimes getting the people who are managing the land all to sing from the same hymn sheet and all to want the same things from the project can be tricky um and 
you'll know this as well as we do, you can spend a lot of time, unpaid time, um, speaking to people, trying to get um, outcomes um, that are going to tick the boxes of not just funders, um, but their communities, um, environmental outcomes. And that can be a difficult thing to get everybody wanting exactly the same things um, and to not feel like someone's getting a little bit more or a little bit less. Um, so there's a lot of time gets spent on that and Ayrshire Rivers Trust are a, a charitable organisation. Um, we don't get any sort of... We don't we don't have any money that comes in each year that we can rely on being there. Um, we've got a team of six people and so at times we do have to be a little bit cautious about where we put time into um, because we can spend a lot of resource um, trying to get projects, trying to get funding, trying to be as helpful as possible to a lot of different people. Um, but if we're not recouping money somewhere, uh, we, we don't survive. Uh, so it's, it's, it's always a very difficult balancing act, um, trying to achieve positive outcomes and balance the books at the end of the year. But we've been on the go for 24 years now, so we're, we're obviously managing somewhere. And Struan, you've you've talked a little bit about some of the projects that you've got on the on the road into spring into March there. But what what does a year look like for the Ayrshire Rivers Trust? What have you got on the books for the rest of the calendar? So a year in the life of um, typically over winter, um, we are report writing. We do quite a lot of consultancy work, um, monitoring work for developments across uh, the catchments in Ayrshire. That's stuff like wind farms, hydro schemes then those things all need to be surveyed and monitored um, to ensure that they're not doing any or having any detrimental impact on the environment. Uh, so this time of year, we're doing quite a lot of report writing. Um, we're also developing projects uh, for the coming year, trying to get those funding secured for um, coming years. Um, it's the season to plant trees, so we are, we're out planting trees for projects when we can get weather conditions that permit that. Um, then going into sort of springtime, we're looking at uh, our giant hogweed um, control on the river air will start probably sometime around May. And that sort of that involves um, uh, spraying or injecting giant hogweed across the, the river air catchment. There's a I think off the top of my head, there's around about 160 miles of riverbanks or thereabouts in the river air catchment that have hogweed on them. Uh, we cover them all, and quite often we cover those sites twice in a year, so it's, it's uh, simple maths, it's a long way. Um, especially when you've got a, a knapsack full of chemical on your back, and your, and your white coveralls and your uh, rubber gauntlets. Um, we also will be looking at uh, Japanese knotweeds and um, Himalayan balsam um, control um, where we're doing that work. Um, typically, we might be doing that for the District Salmon Fishery Board, who will give us a, um, a certain amount of money to go and do as much as we can. Um, so we've got to be quite strategic about how we use those funds, because um, we're not like giant hog eating the river air where we're controlling every plant and sort of preventing a, any flowering plants in the year. Um, if you're dealing with Japanese not, we're looking to try and basically chase it down the cash from work and then from an upstream direction down, so you're not if you're starting at the sea and working up would be a bit daft because you're going to get um, re infestations coming from upstream and just undoing the work you've done there. Moving on from sort of the, the late spring, early summer, we get into our, our electrofishing season where we're we're monitoring the juvenile fish populations across the, the catchments of Ayrshire. Um, and if anyone's interested in that in that work, they're more than welcome to get in touch with us through the through the website. And you know, we're very happy to have people come out and um, volunteer as we're doing that. It's it's incredibly interesting work, and I think it really gives people a, an insight into one how fragile these populations are, two how robust <laughs> fish are, and what they they'll, they'll tolerate. Um, the habitat improvements and where you can see the the benefits coming from that. Um, we also do quite a lot of invertebrate monitoring for developments now as well. So our ledge fishing season typically takes us through from 
July um, into the beginning of October. Um, you're sort of reliant upon half decent weather um, to do that work. And we do work for the, the Dishes Having Fishery Boards and uh, monitoring the salmon populations for, for them. So they can report to the people who they um, operate on behalf of. Uh, we do work for consultancies, that's the, the developments we talked about earlier on. Um, quite often we're, we're doing work for Scottish Government. Um, at the moment we're in the process of developing uh, fishery management plans alongside government um, for all the Ayrshire rivers. Uh, so that's that's work that informs the kind of level of funding intervention that's going to be necessary going forward. I think that's, for Scottish Government, that's a, a key to understanding how do we fund this? Because we've got trust, a trust network across Scotland, 27 trusts across Scotland, 40-odd boards across Scotland. How do we fund, how do we fund um, these delivery mechanisms or these delivery organisations to do the work? You first, you've got to know what's, what kind of money is involved. Um, and that's, that's quite often a difficult thing is to price that work um, unseen. Um, when we build projects, we've, we're very hands-on. We've, um, we've basically, we're working a lot of the time from prior experience. Um, so we've got a, a fairly accurate picture of how much it's going to cost to go and fence two kilometres on a river over there and plant X number of hundred trees. Um, we've got 200 metres of bank need free grading. Okay. So we've, we've, we've done all that um, plenty in the past. We know what's required there, but when you're going and trying to build a project for a whole upper catchment scale restoration type of a affair, that's when it gets a bit more tricky. So that's where Scottish Government want a better understanding of um, where the funding is required. Moving on from that, though, that takes us um, into the sort of the late summer um, or early autumn. And amongst all that, we're still doing um, stuff like fish rescues for developments where we've got maybe a culvert's being put into, into a burn um, before you start pumping water out to get a dry working area. Those fish have to be moved. Um, so we're always on hand to advise developers and to help developers out um, with that type of work. Um, and that takes us into sort of the, the sort of winter months, which are our, our report writing and but and amongst all that stuff as well, we've we're, we've got projects on the go. Um, our managing fencing um, contractors. At the moment, we still do all our own tree planting, but uh, as we scale that up, we may have to rely on on, on contractors to do that work to a certain extent as well. Um, yeah, it's a it's a busy year and it's it's a lot of the time is um, spent outdoors but there's also quite a lot of time spent at computers doing the, the administration side of things um, so it's a nice mix and uh, when you've got weather like we've got at the moment I'm quite happy to be <laughs> spending a bit of time in front of a computer rather than being out. And Struan, just bringing the podcast to a bit of a close now, um, you've already mentioned the website and, and you have covered how people get in touch with you, but um, is there uh, is there any other way people can interact with the Ayrshire Rivers Trust? Can they come to you for advice? And uh, what are some of your closing thoughts just for, for today? Sure. Um, anyone looking to get uh, more sort of updates in the Trust can follow us on I think all the social media platforms. We don't do Twitter quite as much as we used to because that was a previous member of staff who was quite a good on Twitter. Um, but we're on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. Um, our website's a good place to go for um, updates. Um, it's, there's any amount of information for consultants, for land managers um, there. And all our contact details are available um, through the website as well. And anyone's more than welcome to get in touch for any questions um, regarding um, water river bank management or anything they feel is going to impact the, the river, but they're maybe not quite sure um, what the legalities of it are. Uh, all the green engineering works and stuff like that that we do, there's generally speaking, there's a, a license, um, a licensing process to that with SEPA, uh, who we work very closely with. So we've got that expertise. We can take a lot of the the hassle out of for people if, if they require um, guidance on that front. Um, similarly, if people want to volunteer, be that for tree planting, electrofishing, um, some form of ends control, 
then they are more than welcome to do that as well. They just get if anyone gets in touch with the website, um, they can drop us an email and um, Jennifer's uh, growing a, a database of uh, volunteers. And uh, yeah, if you're more than welcome to specify you've got something that you've got a particular interest in, and uh, we'll do our, our best to accommodate that and let you know when there's opportunities uh, happening there. Um, so yeah, um, also anyone's welcome to get onto the website and become a member and support the trust in, in that way. Um, it really does make a difference um, to us and it also it's just it's nice to have that uh, support from the public. Um, I think previously, maybe 20 years ago, we were an organisation or organisations, the Trust Network, I think was by and large set up off the back of failing rod catches and that's, that's salmon predominantly. Um, and the, out of out of that, the, the Trust Network was uh, sort of born uh, with sort of remit of um, bringing improvements to our water courses. Um, I think we're doing that. Um, I think we've been quite successful as a as a sector on the whole. Um, salmon numbers don't necessarily reflect that, but what we also don't know is where salmon numbers would be if it weren't for the trust network and the board network. It might be very much worse than it is currently. The, this, the oceanic phase of the life cycle um, makes it very difficult to sometimes parse out exactly what's happening in our freshwater environment, but that's where that's where trout can be quite a, a good uh, barometer for us and other fish species. Great. Well, Struan, thanks very much for coming back on the podcast. It's always good to, to catch up with you. Uh, we'll maybe hear from you another in another year and a half. But, uh, <laughs> but until then, um, on behalf of the Scottish Farm Advisory Service, thank you very much. No, that's great. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much for having us again. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Thrill the Hill. If you've enjoyed listening, please like, subscribe and follow this podcast. Leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can find all our details at the bottom of our show notes below. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business, and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.